Hey everybody, welcome to Clark Talks, Colombian's podcast where we bring you the stories and views behind the news. I'm Damian Pizzanti. And I'm Katie Gillespie. So this is the first of our bi-weekly shows that we promised you guys. It's Hopefully new and improved slightly. New, <laughs> definitely improved. We spent two weeks thinking about this and planning this, and I think we have a really good discussion coming up. Yeah, and, and like we said in our last show, I think moving forward, I think this is going to give us some opportunity to do some more uh, sort of in-depth analysis on policy and uh, local politics and the, yeah. you know, the things that are important. Rather so. than skimming the service, we want to take a deep dive, get real heady with you contemplate some stuff yeah so this week we're going to start things off with a nice light fun subject uh housing in clark county yes. and housing affordability <laughs> in vancouver and not just housing affordability but but what the what is available in terms of types of homes that yeah. are out there and what's being built right so uh we kind of approach this podcast katie and i from the perspective of Somebody looking to buy maybe their first, maybe their second home, something kind like that. Kind of an that. entry level home. Yeah, yeah. So if you're like, if you're looking in the three fifty, three eighty, four hundred thousand dollar range, this probably isn't a show that's going to interest you too much, unless you're concerned about like maybe your kids being able to buy a house or these, whoever is a couple pay grades below you at your job person being able to buy a house yeah because spoiler alert my my takeaway from the conversation that we had was that the starter home is kind of a thing of the past so yeah yep so i'm actually going to start saving all of my cardboard boxes that i get from costco and glue them together and i think i'm just going to build a house with those seems like the most affordable route i mean it depends on yeah i think you can do that yeah yeah i think that's I the think only that's house the only house you're to build yeah, I agree. And then we're going to talk to Lauren, uh, yes. and this is going to actually be Lauren's last uh, last appearance Sad. on Clark Talks, yes. uh, which we will explain. We're going to miss her so much. Yes, uh, yeah. we'll explain why she is leaving the Colombian um, in our segment with her, uh, and she's going to talk a little bit about what things look like in Olympia as a as a function of the th now third legislative overtime yes. legislative session that they are heading and the, hurtling toward the impending possibilities of a party state government shutdown yeah you've seen it in the federal level get ready for it at the state and then we're it's also like a bad sequel it is God. it is it is it's like it's fast worst. and the furious what are they on like seven 42 47 <laughs> but i will say that franchise is still selling really well yeah for whatever See, i was gonna call it more like sharknado 5 heck yes yeah. uh, i'm all about Global sharknado <laughs> there is a new one coming out straight to VHS. i know there is straight to vhs <laughs> And then, um, as per the usual, we're going to bring you Ashley's Corner to tell you about the good things that are going on this weekend. And we're going to talk probably weekend. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about uh, what what's coming up. The Recycled Arts Festival is this weekend, so uh -huh. we'll spend some time talking about that. That's mm -hmm. a great event. If you don't go, um, you yeah. should. So yeah, you definitely should. And that'll be our show. Yeah. So let's just transition right into our first segment. I don't know how many of you guys out there listening to this own your house or rent your house or even want to buy a house, but um, you probably don't have to watch the news very closely to know that the housing market is really tight right now, especially if you're trying to get into something below, I don't know, 350000 bucks. I'm just going to throw that number out there. But anyway, it's tight. So we thought we would bring in two guys who are going to talk with us a little bit about what exactly is going on out there in the, uh, the Clark County and Vancouver housing markets and why houses are costing as much as they are, why uh, and de why developers are building what they're building. So I guess, Jack, do you 
want to introduce yourself a little bit? You're the guy with the cl mic closest to you right sure. now. So my name is Jack Haroon. My company is Jack Haroon Construction. I currently build um, primarily infill development in downtown Vancouver. Mm -hmm. um, I love the urban market. You were on a board, housing yeah, affordability. So I, was, I was on Vancouver housing uh, or Vancouver's um, affordable housing task force, and I'm still very active along that those lines. Um, I'm a previous president of the Building Industry Association of Clark County. And Dimitri, you are you're uh, a, a realtor and yeah. a builder and a man with many hats, right? Yeah, well, yeah, I'm, uh, my name is Dimitri Manzura. With, uh, I got into real estate 16 years, that's in 2000. And that's maybe before, a year before, like maybe 1999, we started building homes, our first homes in Camas, mm -hmm. Sugal area. Then we kind of uh, moved on towards closer, closer in. And then uh, we built, built in Seattle and now brought our company back here to uh, Vancouver, Washington mm. to uh, sell real estate and build homes as well. Mm. So you do both, you build and sell. Yep, yes. So let's start, um, you know, for me and me and Damien's perspective, obviously, you know, we're, we're young people would be first time home buyers if we if we purchased homes at this point. Um, so, you know, we have our perception of what the market looks like out there. From your guys' end of the end of the stick, from realtors, builders, talk to us just a little bit big picture what the home ownership market looks like out in Clark County, um, you know, rate of the market um, and kind of what's being what's being built out there, what's frequently being built in Clark County right now. Yeah, so <clears throat> I would say that well, the, the first thing I'd want to to really talk about is, is most builders, um, uh, uh, we want to build um, in the largest part of the pyramid of buyers as possible. So there's, I think, the, the myth that builders want to build increasingly expensive homes because they say, oh, well, do you make more money on those, don't you? It's like actually the opposite tends to be true. The homes take longer. Um, there's a lot more risk. And um, the the profit as a percentage is um, greatly diminished. So, um, and then and builders have to price in risk because the market changes. And so, as as you climb up on the price point, um, your risk increases and your because your buying pool decreases. So, from an industry standpoint, we are um, always fighting for affordability. It's never our desire to build increasingly expensive homes. Um, as far as what I'm seeing out there, um, scarcity is what's driving so much of, you know, finding available land to build on, um, the costs of, um, uh, just the development process. And then, then you have impact fees depending on jurisdictions, um, some rules depending on jurisdictions, all of these things are greatly impacting um, the affordability of housing. Looking around at a lot of the developments that I've seen lately, like the signs advertising new homes and subdivisions, I think the lowest one I have seen is like houses starting in the low like 280s or something like that. That's the first number that sticks out. Are we at a point in time where the starter home in Vancouver or in Clark County, you're just not going to find one for below a quarter million bucks? Like are those days gone or? They're gone. They're gone? They're gone. And the, re the reason for that is if when we say starter homes, a lot of times we think of the traditional three bedroom, two bath branch, right? So that like that tends to be the um, for our region what people thought starter homes were. That is really morphed into um, townhomes. Now, your three bath, bedroom, two baths, townhome can be in that two fifty to three hundred thousand dollar price range. 
um, the days of having single family, detached single families in that price range um, largely are gone. Mm. Um, mm. And that, that, and we can talk about it, but there, there's a lot of base cost issues around land development that, and impact fees that have, mm. have changed the dynamic so much that that's no longer possible. Dimitri, before we started recording, you actually said something that, um, and I think you even said it a little bit when we were on the phone the other day talking about this stuff, but something that stuck out to me that I think I asked you something to the effect of like, uh, why aren't we seeing like, you know, smaller homes on small lots? And I think you kind of echoed what he just said, where it's about the just the the cost effectiveness of actually being able to build a build a small place on a small plot of land. What's going on there? Yeah, like well, like Jack mentioned, I mean, in order for us to uh, build, uh, in order for us to build smaller, you know, small affordable housing, mm-hmm. I mean, we would have to. Uh, you can't find property land that's zoned five thousand square feet cheap enough to build something that's under, you know land plus the construction to be under 250 and i think the only way like it's done in seattle is the density we mm-hmm. have to uh you know the zoning change with the change of zoning we mm-hmm. could uh we're able to build four or f- you know three or four on the same lot and that that way you could have smaller homes and more affordable cheaper homes that's the only way and I think that's so frequently what I see, you know, when I drive around these these newer subdivisions, you know, I live in the downtown area, you know, older homes on smaller lots, they tend to scale a little bit smaller. But in these new developments, I mean, they're large, you know, 5,000-ish square foot lots with, with large homes on them. So, I mean, what do you guys think that says about the housing market in Vancouver, that it just, it just seems like houses are, are being built at a larger scale and there's census data to back that up so right but that has to do with your your cost to build so generally speaking um uh, builders operate between an eight and twelve percent profit margin Mm -hmm. they can't you can't go below that number because then the the financing structure collapses um as far as the risk reward kind of thing um, the general rule of thumb has always been take the lot price, times it by four. There's your starter. There's your house. There's your, there's your house. Okay. Um, when you take a um, current dirt, so, you know, from a builder standpoint, we're always talking about, you know, dirt. Mm-hmm. And um, you're probably at the low end, $120,000 to buy a piece of dirt. So a 7,500 square foot lot, five, you know, um, 7,500 to 9,000 square foot lot, depending on the zoning and where you're at. Um, you're generally 150 to 160 tends to be about the right, you know, where a lot of that, those prices are in at. Mm-hmm. Um, then on top of that, you have your impact fees. Right. And so, so those school drive, impact fees, sc- school impact fees, impact fees, traffic, park, water, sewer. Um, and then they always come up with some other creative fees in there mm-hmm. as you, so you have like the parks say, oh, we want green space, we want parks. Okay, well, so then you have your 100 acres and you take out 25 of those for parks. And everybody goes, that's a great thing. Well, okay. And then um, then you get your water quality issues. So your bioswells and things like that. Again, important, keep the water clean, keep the environment clean. You lose another 25 to 35% um, depending on your road structures. And then, so now you're, now you're, you're, the actual buildable portion of your land is, you know, 30, 40% or however that works out for right, which development. Right. And then you look at um, zoning regulations that say, well, we want to see 10,000 square foot lots. 
So all of those costs have to get factored into that. And if you talk about what um, Dimitri was was um, referring to, is like, well, the other option is to really shrink those lots or to do townhomes or anything to get that affordability down, because those costs are fixed costs and they have to be um, spread out somewhere. One of my former coworkers reported last year that uh, new houses are getting built just around under 2,400 square feet. And if I'm hearing you correctly, developers are building houses that big, not necessarily because that's what the market is demanding, but but that's like sort of a sweet spot for profitability. So I don't do subdivision building. Generally from, you know, when you're speaking to our subdivision builders, in order for them to hit their profit margins mm-hmm. and to move their product. So you have the two you have you want to keep your prices as competitive as possible to move your product because they're production builders so they need to sell so your best value for new construction for dollars per square foot mm-hmm. um, will will always be in your mass produced if you build a 1600 square foot house you can't justify that price point that, that needs to be at to pay for all of the other costs that I had previously outlined. Got you. So when you're buying a house, so when you're pricing a house, it's not necessarily just like the the sheetrock and uh, and hardwood floors you're paying for, but you're also paying for the cost of putting in a road and sewer and then the cost of like a park and things like that going in down the road. Yeah. Uh, Dimitri, the existing stock housing that's out there, what kind of houses are we seeing for sale? Like, is it mostly old stuff or is it mostly just like the new construction that is... Well, there's, there. I mean, it depends. It depends where we're we talking about closer in, or we are talking Let's say about in Vancouver, Vancouver cities, city sure. limits, right? Yeah. I mean, I, we don't see we don't see that that many new construction because land is not really easy to find. I mean, and especially in a lower price range, it's gonna be something. Uh, it's gonna be older, small, small little older houses. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that are gonna be available in the price, you know, price point mm-hmm. under two fifty. Mm. Really small, thousand square mm-hmm. feet. One story, hmm. something small. What are you What are you talking with your clients about when you're when somebody comes to you and says like, "Hey, Dimitri, I want to come buy. I want to buy a house." Uh, what do you tell them to expect, and what what should they expect? I mean, if they if they want to pay, you know, close to two fifty, I would tell them that they have to go further out because um, mm-hmm. closer in uh, pro- properties values are you know way higher. Sure. So they'll have to go further out, <clears throat> like towards you know Battleground, Richfield, mm-hmm. or or Washougal. I mean, generally speaking, what should somebody expect to spend on on a on an average house or a modest house now? Probably three hundred thousand, right? Probably, I would say three hundred thousand. Wow, is it is it a good time to be buying? It was a. Um, I imagine it's probably a better time to be selling. But does it still make sense to even try to buy a house in Vancouver? That's actually, yeah. That's a that's a that's a tough question. I mean, we were actually in two thousand five. We we're actually thinking about the same thing, mm-hmm. and then you know people still need houses to live in, so people still need to uh, buy houses. Mm-hmm. And it's just if somebody is looking for something new, it's gonna be really hard to get into a new house. It's gonna have to be an older house. Yeah, that's sure. it. There is there almost like a desperation factor out there in in trying to get into a home when things are moving so quick so i think all that you know scarcity always brings a bit of you know desperation i think um if it makes sense for you it makes sense for you financially and for your lifestyle then that's you know um, those are those kind of decisions they're not necessarily investment decisions to make um they're they're much more of the the 
the personal thing. But the challenge, and this is the painful part, is you know my mom is going to retire, you know, in Eastern Washington and sell her you know pretty large home in, um, and be she wants to move to Vancouver and hopefully downtown area where she's close to her kids. Well, her large home with a beautiful view will probably sell in the two hundred fifty thousand dollar price range, mm-hmm. and and then to move her, you know, downtown Vancouver for two hundred fifty thousand is, you know, it's going to be. She, she's lucky she has a son that's a builder. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up Seattle earlier, and I want to see what you guys think of this because in the city in Seattle, they've been fighting for a couple years now about. Um, it's something like 60, 68, if I remember right, 68% of that city's uh, residential space is single-family lots. And there's been a big push to try to uh, convert those lots into you know, uh, mixed-use developments or at least like turn them into denser housing. And, of course, like the neighborhood groups are just pissed about that and have been really trying to reject that idea. But nonetheless, like it's happening more and more. You'll see like, you know, a... Some uh, somebody will sell their house, and then the house is wiped off the lot, and then immediately goes up is like a stack of like four uh, a, a fourplex mm-hmm. goes in in its place. And as we down here are wrestling with probably a less severe but still very similar situation, are we going to start seeing stuff like that happen here? Is like the Esther Short neighborhood or even like the Uptown Village are are we going to start seeing a trend where like older homes get replaced with more apartments or more townhomes and things like that? I would say it depends on your values, right? So um, when we, when we tear down a house and build, you know, a new home or, um, uh, you know, increase density in, in, in some manner or another, um, one of my more successful projects was on a little lot on um, 16th and Markle and we were, um, it was a 50,000 square foot lot, and we put three single family de- detached. We had to condoize them, but we just had a particular urban zoning that allowed me to do it. One of the only areas in our neighborhood that you could do that. And because of this, the setbacks and some different things, we were able to put uh, you know, much more affordable homes uh, on a much tighter space. Um, if you don't want that, um, your other option is sprawl. So the you have the the NIMBY factor that says, hey, we don't want our beautiful single-family neighborhood with plenty of street parking and all this stuff to to have more people in it. But then, then where are people going to live? All this talk about affordable housing in this area, do you guys think that the cities and the county are doing what they need to do to address this, or are they behind the curve? I, I, I personally think that there should be a... I think there should be more density and more lots, you know, allowed and zoning changes mm-hmm. to where you could build. I mean, instead of, uh, I mean, would lo- definitely love to keep, if the home has good bones, would definitely like to keep uh, the home. But if the zoning would allow us to put four families in the same, and a lot of buyers actually come up to me and always ask that, uh, you know, they want zero, you know, they move from somewhere from, closer in or they're moving from further with big lot now they want to move in into something really really small low maintenance mm-hmm. so i mean there's buyers a lot of buyers that are looking for something that's you know zero zero maintenance mm-hmm. 
Um, do you guys see uh, that, you know, the city is taking some efforts to make changes to its ADU policies? There's been so much conversation about tiny houses lately and I, I, the, the whole culture around that. Do you guys see either of those things as potential relief valves for the market here? Not particularly. No, why not? Well, first off, most people won't live in a. They they they, they like watching the tiny house show, but they're not going to live in four hundred square feet. Yeah. <laughs> um, my favorite part of that tiny house show is when people go into it and they're like, "God, it's really small." <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I mean, there, there's the reality of there's the reality of life, right? right. I mean, I have I have a, you know a two year old and a four year old, and you know that would be like a cage. You know, I'd be stuck with two wild That's animals true. in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> and if you say, okay, you can go ahead and put a whole bunch of tiny homes in an area. I'm like, okay, well, so I'm going to build a whole bunch of 400 square foot homes and then we'll sell them for X amount of dollars. I still have $30,000 in impact fees per home that I'm going to have to to do. So now- How does that work? You, when you say per home, you don't mean per tiny house. Yeah, no, per home. Really? Well, because how does that how does that work? Well, so because you're thinking so you're, you're... so wait hold on one house thirty thousand dollars on a lot, but then you put four small houses on the same lot, four tiny homes on the same lot, and it's thirty thousand dollars for each one. Am yes. I hearing that right? Yeah. How does that work? But so 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 to your point that the impacts for traffic, the impacts for park, water, and sewer are really not based on square footage; they're based on people, and and so you have. You know, if you have three tiny houses or four tiny houses, you're going to have at least four cars and then four, you know, and if you have four families, you're going to have four, you know, school impacts. And so that's how that's calculated. It's not. Um, so then when you get to the square footage prices or why houses are certain size square foot, well, if you're buying 400 square feet and you kicked out, you know, your land cost, your impact cost, your sales tax, um, and then all of the other costs involved, well, now you're paying a lot of money for a very small. So this is the thing when you when you tack regulation, you know, when people talk about, you know, you know, regulate this and regulate that, that everything came out of a good idea, right? It's like, well, wouldn't it be a good idea? So Camus is great, you know, wouldn't it be a good idea if every single house had a fire sprinkler system in it? I'd say, absolutely. And if I was in, if I had a fire in my house, I would really want a fire sprinkler system in there. <laughs> mm-hmm. The question becomes at what point do do you say you know there's safe enough we've hit a certain standard that we say is an acceptable standard and um and are going to go with it or are we always in this continual let's create a new rule a new regulation for every thousand dollars increase in housing in clark county there's three to four hundred households that can no longer afford to buy that home so that's about 1,200 people. So every time we create a new regulation that creates um, $1,000, um, we take, you know, say 400 families out of Clark County from ability to buy that home. So what's the solution to that? Is it is it reducing regulation? Is it taking a, a look at some of those regulations that are in place and determining, you know, what things can be adjusted? Like, what is the solution for that? I, I, w- I would argue that there there has to be a means test to all of the regulations of like, is this, is this accomplishing what we want? There's always the good argument for all of these things. How long would you estimate it takes um, from, from planning to permitting to new homeowner turning their key in the door? How, how long of a process is that? Well, depends. So there's the land use side, right? And that, that can be, um, uh, and maybe Dimitri can talk talk about this a little bit more, but but it's it can be two to four years. 
to get, to take that piece of dirt to development. Um, I think two years is tends to be a fairly quick process now. Um, all of that time, you're paying interest on your money. Have you done much subdivision stuff? No, not much. Development? No. Yeah. Dimitri, you do infill, huh? <clears throat> infill. You know, that's something that I've actually been really, that I think about a lot when I drive around Vancouver, because I see so many lots where, like there's one place in particular, and I guess the city just bought it. It's over by the, the, uh, the driving range and the, the yeah. yeah, the mall. And I'm like, man, that is like, that is just a sea of asphalt. You could stick so, you could stick so much housing or even like a mixed development there. Uh, I mean, but it seems like those types of places are going away more and more. Um, what do you look for in the t in the property you're going to buy to do an infill project? Like, when is it worth it? Uh, well, it's almost it's really hard to find. It's almost uh, there's really like in the city limits. There's really there's really no uh, no lots. I mean, so you have to get creative. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you know, short plat or so. What does that mean? Get creative. Maybe get smaller lots. Okay. But then, uh, yeah, that's the only way to be closer in. Hmm. And I think with the, uh, you know, uh, downtown buildings coming up, then there's going to be more people that want to live closer in. Mm -hmm. And then it's kind with of a the perpetuating you know, cycle. Yeah, with the R9, just one house on one lot, it's, it's just going to drive the prices up. And you can't really build and be under, what, 600,000? Mm. You can't. Because then the the property would you can't get you can't buy a property for you know less than a hundred thousand. Wow. So then there you have construction costs. So then you it drives the prices up even more. She and I have talked about this quite a bit. That like man, if I never had to drive to work, if I could just ride my bike or ride the bus everywhere, I'm great with that. Like I really like the idea of density. So. Um, Man, if you can get more houses up like that, give me a call and let me know. <laughs> yeah, so long as they don't cost you half a million dollars, though. Exactly. So I want to say the challenge behind that, right, is is it really becomes a, I think you see it in Seattle, of, of the whole NIMBY kind of thing of like, well, that's great there, you know. Yeah, it wouldn't work great there when you have to see it out your window, right? <laughs> right. And so, and I, and I get that, right? I mean, I, I get that. So, you know, we did a, a beautiful restored craftsman and it looks right and it looks, you know, um, and that's not what people, when people bought into that neighborhood, that's what they were buying. Um, so when a developer comes in or, you know, we want to go, hey, you know, we could put th this dilapidated house that's filled with asbestos and lead. We can put four really high, you know, um, energy efficient, environmentally safe, great, you know, and put more families, have less impact on the environment right here. Well, but then it's going to impact their environment and it does impact their environment, um, you know, and just your personal space. And so those are those real value choices that you need to make of, of, you know, what's that process? And then how easy is that process going to be? I mean, it would be nice from a builder standpoint to if we bought a, a lot downtown, however many houses we could figure out how to stick on that thing, you know, and then we just draw some lines and submit it to the city and it's approved. That would be, that would be dream world mm -hmm. for builder, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens is it triggers all kinds of reviews and process and, and, and then the timeline doesn't work out, and if the timeline doesn't work out, and the costs don't work out, doesn't pencil, and so so now we're back to the six hundred thousand dollar, you know, single family single family house yeah. instead of four or five houses that are going to be in the three hundred thousand dollar range. Hmm. I just think everybody should live like I do. 
I live in a 300 square foot studio. It's the tiny house thing, yep. right? So you're you're the one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, Where is that at? It's in a it's in a house uh, in Uptown that's been converted into apartments. So. Oh really? Yeah. It's in here? Yeah. Oh nice. And a lot of people like actually those little really cool creative little, little uh, houses. Mm-hmm. Like in Portland, they do a lot of those in Portland, mm-hmm. and a lot of people love them. I mean, be, be, better than living in apartments because mm-hmm. people hate to share walls. Yeah. And so they would rather have a little small. Like I build my house and I have an ADU, so then I posted my ADU for rent. Mm-hmm. And I I probably had ten people looking at it, and that ten people want to all ten people want to lease it. Wow. So then wow. so and because it's different, it's unique, and nobody else has it. I think it's kind of a generational thing. I mean, this is my theory, because like a lot of people I know that are my age, like we don't, most of us don't care or don't even really want like a big place. It's just more to clean and like a higher cost to just to run all the time. Yeah, exactly. And so um, like, I love the idea of getting like a, like a 700 or like no more than a thousand square foot house. That seems fantastic. But even like just to try to find a house like that out there is a nightmare, so. It's not possible. No, and exactly. then, especially when people moving into town, like from other states, mm-hmm. they want to be closer to, uh, you know, you want to be in the mix. Like to, yeah, to yeah. meet people, you know, be close to this, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to feel that way when you don't have kids. You don't have like a bunch of stuff around you either. I'm sure if like you know, give me a couple of kids, and I'm definitely gonna want like a suburban house out in Battleground or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But exactly. Late, lately, people like nowadays people have less and less kids. Yeah, it's That's true. It's true. Yeah, I think we'll leave it there. All right, thanks, thanks a lot for coming on, guys. Thanks. All right, so we are sitting down with uh, with Lauren Dake. This is the uh, last time that we're going to hear her on Clark Talks, which bums me out, but not the last know. time. We never know. Never know, but <laughs> not the last time that people are going to hear from you, because tell us real quick what... Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was a little low. Thank you. It's all good. <laughs> what's, what, what's next for you in the coming, coming months? Uh, this fall, I'm going to be starting a new job with Oregon Public Broadcasting, covering state politics, primarily in Oregon, I believe. But um, So not right. Southwest Washington? Probably not as much. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Kind of what you were doing before, right? You were working for a newspaper covering state-level politics in Oregon, but now you're jumping to the radio waves. Changing yeah. mediums. Changing mediums, exactly. I would just like to throw out there that uh, I think we facilitated your introduction to this medium, so you're welcome, OPB. You did. clearly we're responsible. Although, <laughs> I did have a 4 a.m. radio show of my own in college. Oh. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of Shut up. Are you serious? That's awesome. <laughs> was it music? It was or? Like, once a week at 4 a.m., I would go down to the basement of our college dorm room and, yeah, put on music records that's awesome yeah. <laughs> i didn't talk very much did you put that on your resume for OPB? i didn't i didn't <laughs> i just kind of remembered that i should have it really helped probably well um man i'm literally looking forward to hearing what you're going to cover but at the same time i'm so sad you're going Thanks. you're been a really it's, fun coworker to work with i agree you guys have too it's columbian is a good newsroom it really is yeah it's been a great place to work for sure so, I mean, even though, man, this chapter at the Columbian for you is closing, the, uh, the things are showing no signs of slowing down up in Olympia right now. What is going on up there? Yeah. Where are we at? So tomorrow, Wednesday, so the day that this podcast will air, will be the final day of the second special session. 
So uh, still no, no, today was a revenue forecast, bumped up uh, the state's revenues a little bit, but not significantly, not enough to where I think it would make a real mark in negotiations. Mm. But um, basically they have until midnight on June 30th to sign some sort of operating budget before entering a partial government shutdown. Most people have been sort of giving us the optimistic view that that's not going to happen. But you never know. They've become. They've been very close in the past to entering t- mm-hmm. uh, shutdown territory without doing so. But uh, we'll see. It's really difficult right now because all these negotiations are happening behind closed doors. They're not, and you know, it's not a very transparent p- process. It's so, incredibly frustrating that governments are starting to do this more and more. It drives me crazy. Yeah, I mean, the, their argument is, hey, it's not going to be productive to ar- to negotiate out in public. We won't get anywhere that way. But at the same time, it's pretty difficult as a public or a reporter to, to try and inform people on what's really happening, what's the true status of these negotiations, when you only can take you know one lawmaker's word for it who happens to call you back and share, oh, things are going well. Well, and especially when when it's a, a subject as complicated and as significantly, I mean, that has such significant impact as this McCleary conversation. I mean, this is going to affect millions of people in, in Washington, potentially, depending on what they what they end up doing. So, I mean, let's be realistic. It's not like having an uh, uh, it, it's not like they're being any more productive behind closed doors than they have been in an open session. I mean, maybe I'm a cynic, but I really have a hard time believing that that's the case. It also doesn't seem like there are any fewer sassy tweets being sent by politicians about the other side. So any airing of dirty laundry, it seems like is still happening. So that's one thing I do love about state politics right now is like towards the end of the session, all those the political parties tweets just get sassier and cattier and more passive aggressive. It's like mm-hmm. who are these people? Anyway, um, so a couple things that I want to know and tell me if you can. Tell me if you can't. Are um, at least in the last session, the Republicans were saying that the increase in state revenue was going to be enough to, that we weren't going to have to create any new taxes. Are they still touting that line? Well, their original plan did raise taxes. Their levy swap plan was sort of a um, a property tax increase for some people. It was kind of a property tax equalization across the state. So some people would see their taxes increase, and some would not I. see them. I.e., rural counties would see a property tax decrease, and then like places like Seattle would see a pretty significant yeah, jump, right? For the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, as far as I can tell, the so-called levy swap is very much part of the discussion. One thing that uh, did come off the table recently was Governor Inslee said that he was willing to take his capital gains tax um, off the table. Hmm. Yeah, which the Republicans have fought against for a long time and um, didn't seem to be helping negotiations. So maybe that will help a little bit. Um, I'm trying to think. It's it's just hard to say where they're at right now. Right. I mean, we're kind what, of feeling around what, in the dark. Yeah. What about... Um, Maybe tell us a little bit about this partial government shutdown, if you can. In the event of that happening, what state offices aren't going to be open or which ones will be? I, th- I think it will really depend on how long the government shutdown lasts. Mm. And it is a partial government shutdown. So I think something like 26,000 state employees will get la- temporary layoff notices. And and this, is, this would be non-essential services, right? For so. the most part, yeah. Yes. Okay. And then 
Um, so things like state patrol are still going to be right happening. ESD right. presumably. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, but again, just I don't think anybody wants to go there yet. But it depends on how long a shutdown lasts or how long they go. There's also the idea, I believe, being floated to pass a sort of stopgap budget, so a temporary budget that doesn't solve all these big overarching issues that they're trying to tackle, but gets them through the shutdown. So Mm, it's enough money to keep them going for a while without a shutdown so they can keep negotiating. But I don't know. At this point, your guess is as good as mine is what's going to happen. Yeah, I sat down with, um, I had a story in Tuesday's paper about uh, Battleground Superintendent Mark Hottaway, who's retiring at the end of this year. Um, And uh, this didn't make it into the story, but I asked him about everything. I asked him about McCleary and if it's been frustrating in his final year to see all this gridlock. And and he had strong words (laughs) about the legislator. I mean, he, he was very, very frank with me and said that he does not think they're going to come to any kind of solution this year and doesn't think that they're or if they do come to some kind of solution that it's not going to be one that really tackles the issues of school funding in any sort of meaningful way um i guess is there uh again i think i think the the line he used was that that it's never been about kids it's always been about people's elected election prospects that that these guys in Olympia aren't going to raise taxes or create new streams of revenue because that's not going to to win them votes in November. So, I mean, what with that in mind, like with that sort of idea in mind, like what happens if they don't come to a solution or if they come to a solution that's not significant or meaningful? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot we're hearing from a lot of education advocates right now that they're concerned that the legislature will not go far enough and will not adequately fund state the state's public schools again it's hard to say there's essentially eight people in olympia right now hashing this out um the two people from the southwest washington delegation on the negotiating team are senator ann rivers the republican from listener and representative paul harris republican from vancouver both of them are you know I think as they have to do as part of a politician, they're saying we're getting there, we're close. Every time I check in with them, it's looking good, Lauren. We're getting, you know. So, yeah, it's it's difficult to say, but if they if they don't reach an agreement or if they release something that you know the public rejects and the their fellow their caucuses reject, um, it'll be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, mm-hmm. the court will weigh in again. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see what what the court can do now. As as most people probably already know, the court is already holding the legislature in contempt. And it's already fining the legislature one hundred thousand dollars per day, which is you know a, a drop in the bucket actually. And the money goes to education funding anyway. But it's just the symbolism of mm-hmm. we're we're fining you until you find this solution. Right. Mm-hmm. Keep working. I mean, this isn't the first time that Washington State has been in this situation. I don't remember enough about it to really contribute a lot right now. But um, when I was writing about McCleary like a couple years ago, um, I was told that like in the 1970s, Washington State sat down with school education funding and they were like, this is going to be the time that we fix this, that we're going to address this inadequate lack of funding. And, uh, you know, a very similar like song and dance uh, was played back then. And it uh, was like a half solution to the problem. And at least one person I talked to and a couple stories I wrote said this is largely what led us to the situation that we're in now. And 
Absolutely. The school funding issue in Washington has been going on for decades. And, and that comes up a lot in these negotiations because I, I do believe that at least some lawmakers authentically want to genuinely want to come up with a solution that is sustainable so mm-hmm. that in 20 years, once again, we're not back in this similar situation. And, and I imagine that is a pretty difficult task. Totally. They've also had a long time to... Well, it's like to the, tackle it. the last like two sessions in a row, everybody says, oh, we're not going to get much done this year because we have to fix education. We've got to pass education this year. And I mean, if you take them at their word, like we are missing so much. Produ- we are wasting so much productive time on one issue. Though, to be fair, it is a highly significant issue. The, so. <laughs> the paramount duty of the state. Yeah. <laughs> um, so says the education reporter. Um, so let's transition to the city. What are yeah. the, what's your, what's your hot take on every, how things are going at the city of Vancouver? So I think right now? a few, I think this summer is going to be kind of slow with the city of Vancouver. I've been talking to um, city manager, Eric Holmes about what's happening over there and they're taking a pretty good break in July. So there won't be very many meetings, but um, there are some things that people should be keeping their eyes on. Um, one is, you know, what happens with the Block 10 development. That's the Barry Kane, Graymore development right downtown in the heart of the city. Proposed grocery store on that side, right. which, which significant groups of people have been advocating for for a long time. Right. So keep an eye on that. Is that grocery store coming in? What do those negotiations look like? Are, is the city insurance you know big reason that barry kane won that bid was because he promised a grocery store Mm -hmm. so important to keep that accountability there um vancouver public schools was also eyeing that lot so that'll be something to watch too yeah they want to build a downtown elementary school so what happens with that proposal and the city's still working with them to find another location Mm -hmm. on that so another thing to keep an eye on um last night their meeting they um approved the the Terminal 1 master plan, so the waterfront continues, all that development continues, something also really interesting to look out for. They also reminded everybody, and this is an important reminder, that this 4th of July is the first 4th of July in the city limits where fireworks are prohibited. They won't be sold and they can't be used. So if you want to use your, I don't know, I, I are sparklers even out loud? I, I should ask you about that. Do they allow snakes? Yeah, I are should snakes ask. snakes still okay? I don't know. I don't know, actually. I think they're all prohibited. But a sparkler, does that count as a firework? I guess so. Definitely. Yeah. I think that counts. So uh, head somewhere else. Get outside city limits if you're going to use those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we've read a lot lately about cruising the gut and its uncertain future. The car hot rod car show mm-hmm. that happens in Vancouver and draws like... 30,000 people to the city every summer. Wow. Yeah, Cruising the Gut is no joke. Well, last year, it was insane. <laughs> so many people. So, yeah, those are... Yeah. Um, cool. Was there anything else? Is there anything we missed? Or No, I think that's that's great. Keep listening. Clark Talks is a good podcast. You guys have done a good job putting this out there. Well, we will miss you. Have a good summer. You too. And miss you we'll... Too. Uh, uh, look forward to hearing what you put together for OPB. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. So now we come to my favorite part of the show, the time where we get to think about the weekend and all the good, awesome, super interesting stuff happening in our uh, region. 
And who better to tell us about those things than Ashley Swanson? Woohoo! So you're going to tell us a little bit, in light of this new format that we're doing, you're mm-hmm. going to tell us uh, a little bit about what's going on this weekend. And then we're going to talk what's happening next weekend as well, right? Yeah, so it's basically going to be more of an event primer, I think. Maybe, maybe listeners will be like, yeah, I really want to hear about something to do Sunday or something to do next week. I don't know. I don't know. Give that feedback. I think what we should do is we should just like tell everybody what your cell phone number is. <laughs> and if they're looking for something to no. do, they can just text no. you. And you can like no. look it up for them. No. Not into that? No. Okay. No, Ashley is not let me Google that for you.com. <laughs> 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 All right. So the big thing this weekend is the Recycled Arts Festival. Yes. Right? So. I mean, this is the creme de la creme of Clark County events. Literally. Like yeah. it's like an award winning event, which oh, good, yeah. apparently that's a thing. You can win, mm-hmm. counties can win awards for putting on awesome events. So. Definitely. I mean, it even has the seal of approval from like the uh, Portland Rosarians. Like, it's a huge, big deal. Um, it's been 12 years strong uh, in Esther Short Park, bringing all the weird and wacky, wonderful um, recycled arts to, to Clark County. Yeah. I mean, where else... I ask both of you, where else can you go to find a like a spade shovel and some lug nuts welded together to look like a heron standing in your yard? Only at the Recycled Arts Fest. It's true. And and basically it started because um, so yes. basically it started because Clark County wanted to have people kind of care more about recycling and and learn more and, and see it not as basically a chore, but as something that you can have Celebrate. fun with. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, the arts festival is basically like, look at all these great artists that take something that you see as trash and turn it into something that's really cool and, and useful and, and decorative. It's pretty clever. Yeah. So it runs um, every last uh, weekend in, in the month of July. So the 24th and 25th. June. In June. Ah, it runs every last <laughs> weekend in June, mm-hmm. this year, the 24th and 25th. Um, and it, it kind of juries um, the artists. Like, uh, it has about 150 slots for artists from across the region. And um, it filled, those slots fill up really quick. People love participating. Artists love coming back year after year after year. Yeah, this is almost an event that needs no introduction. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is so packed down at that park when this goes on on the weekend. And there's some, like, really impressive work. Oh, yeah. It yeah. brings in thousands upon thousands of people to Esther Short Park. And what's cool this year is they're offering um, a free shuttle service to kind of help with parking. Oh, cool. So if um, up on Franklin Street, they have the, the parking structure there, so you can park there and they'll they'll basically shuttle you down to the park and shuttle you back which is especially good if you're uh, you know buying a couple sculptures or or art pieces or clocks for sure cool kids ride their bikes i'm just saying that's also a thing if you ride your bikes you get a free bike light they have so much swag if you're doing (laughs) things if you're bringing your reusable mug yeah if you're biking um yeah they give you a free bike light Mm -hmm. if you ride your bike and they're offering uh free uh, let's see uh, free bike parking available uh, with the folks from Bike Clark County. <laughs> yeah, but I think they they like take your bike. They'll like check your bike in. And 
So it's a bike valet. That's yeah, awesome. Exactly. Part of the, the festival requirements is that uh, the items that you're making have to be at least 70% recyclable or reused items. That's awesome. Um, and then what's also really cool is in addition to all the artist booths, they also set up a sculpture garden. So a lot of artists make kind of bigger um, pieces that we've had dragons in the past. We've had tiki sculptures and they'll set them out um, on pop props to square. So you can see kind of um, the immensity of what you can do. And, and they also have booths for kids to create crafts or create musical instruments from recycled trash. Um, another popular booth is kind of um, Waste Connection shows all the things that people throw away and they're kind of like, why would you throw a very nice ukulele away or, you know, a, a rocking horse? And it's just all these really random items that, you know, people decided were trash and they're clearly not when you view totally. them through a different lens. And then new this year too, they're um, doing a procession of the species. Which I am super stoked about because we lived in Olympia for, for many years and the procession of the species is amazing. So it's a it's a parade. It's sort of like an impromptu parade. Um, and anybody anybody can participate is my mm -hmm. understanding, yes. right? So um, you can dress up as your favorite plant, animal, or element <laughs> and frolic down the street. And it just is a celebration of nature and the species and the procession of the species. Yeah. So the parade will happen at 10 a.m. on Sunday. But if you go to the festival on Saturday, there will be booths to help you create masks and costumes and capes. Mm -hmm. And so if you wanted to be, you know, a praying man, for the the parade you can you know figure out how to dress up um as best as you can and they'll be offering prizes for the best costumes and such but yeah and it's a way to again look at trash differently and and find items to recycle because they're encouraging people to make these costumes and masks out of you know old toilet paper rolls um you know milk cartons and all those sort of things so it's just another way to kind of get involved and and view trash as treasure next weekend is obviously fourth of july weekend fourth of july this weekend's on a tuesday yeah it's a so weird sort of dealio um you could make it a long weekend or you could not I yeah don't know. it's it's gonna be weird um but we have the vancouver rodeo to save us um next weekend um because you know you gotta wait until fourth of july which is a tuesday and what are you gonna do friday saturday sunday until right. then so you're gonna get your cowboy hat and throw on your favorite yes. Garth Brooks mixtape. <laughs> yes, definitely. So it's a big annual tradition. I think it's been going for almost 50 years now at the rodeo. Could be wrong. I forgot to look that up. Um, but yeah, the Vancouver rodeo happens at the Clark County Saddle Club um, in East um, Clark County near Bush Prairie, and it is four days of everything you would want from a rodeo so bull riding um saddle bronc uh roping uh barrel racing after every um rodeo event because they they kind of run every competition each each day so this is june 30th through july 3rd um after all the events are over with you get to do wonderful cowboy dances um saturday or yeah saturday sunday and monday they'll do some nice square dancing you can get your shoes all shined up for a good good community dance for the non-rodeo folk mm-hmm Anything that you would recommend going on that weekend? When are they doing fireworks? Is that happening on Tuesday? It is happening on Tuesday. All so right. you, I mean, it is the national holiday of, of 
freedom displays. In the past, it was basically more of an all-day picnic sort of thing with vendors and music starting from like noon until 10 p.m. when they did the fireworks. Um, so this year, they've decided to make admission free, which is great. And it's now going to be like you can start arriving at noon if you want to save your, your traditional spot on, on the parade grounds. Um, but the entertainment and everything starts around 6. Um, so they'll have, again, live bands. They've got a, a bunch of local favorites coming in to perform, including uh, the new shoes. And then um, the fireworks will take place at 10 p.m., uh, 10.05, technically, um, as usual out on the um, airfield and such. Well, yeah. Well. So it's just a more community event. And then if you want to get really close to the fireworks, you can pay for the preferred seating, uh, which oh. is about like 15 to to. 20 bucks i think yeah and you get like a beer garden and some exclusivity um but you get slightly closer which is kind of fun cool i'll be curious alan is doing a a fireworks show on the fourth of july i'll be curious to see if that pulls away from well probably uh, not but but i mean you're you're discounting all the other big fourth of july celebrations that happen in clark county true true so we have ridgefield's all day festival of fun of fourth of july they do a big community parade they do fun runs um they have dances in the street they do community games and picnics and parties yeah like, ridgefield loves fourth of july oh yeah they go ridgefield all out down. they go all out it's from like 7 a.m to 10 30 at night all the things and this year they get their fireworks back last a couple years ago they weren't able to to get the money together to do fireworks so. oh cool yeah. Um, also, Felida does their um, annual community park parade in Felida Park. So I just want to be clear. All of these things are happening on Tuesday. Yes. Fourth okay. of July. Um, so they do their community park uh, parade where they encourage everyone nearby to dress up in their most festive patriotic gear, uh, do a fun community parade, and then enjoy like community picnic style with some music and um, fun information activity books booths and then camas washugal it says america like informational activity booths yeah colt also is going all out um this year they're doing a lot of kind of old-timey games and picnic things so they'll even have um a couple board game companies offering up different stuff and sweet community fun things and they'll do a parade as well and also uh fireworks around 10 p.m from their ballpark um and then Camas Washugal out at the port, they will be hosting a big concert, picnic, uh, games and bike parades, and also fireworks. So, lots so what you're of trying to say is even though fireworks are more restrictive this year, there are plenty of places to see fireworks. Yeah, definitely. But to be fair, I mean, people don't set fireworks off on their lawn because they like looking at fireworks as the the weekend before the fourth of july is this going to be a fairly quiet weekend because of all the crazy madness stuff going on aside from the rodeo no there's definitely other events happening for sure gotcha um i think ridgefield is doing their first saturday event um Mm. which will kind of tie into their little ridgefield ridgefield's happening man it's not queen at all you can be quaint and bustling at the same time. Mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's Got a Venn it. diagram. Got it. And in the middle is Ridgefield. Yeah. So that, man, there's literally going to be more things to do than I think people are going to know what to do this upcoming weekend. Yeah. I will warn you, the big, big, big weekend will be that July 7th 
weekend. There are so many events happening that weekend. I am just kind of mind boggled. It's overwhelming. Yeah, it's really? crazy. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. Well, we'll have another show. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I look forward to hearing about it. Mm-hmm. Give people some time to prep. Yeah. Cool. Well, unless there's anything else we need to talk about, I think we killed it. Uh, there's always more to talk about. But. Yeah. These people, where can they go? Uh, Columbian.com slash events is our online event calendar. Or the weekend section of the paper. Every Friday. Which is a very, it's probably my favorite section of the paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where else are you going to find all the different beer festivals, bike rides, Bigfoot runs? Thanks for coming on. Anytime. All right. That's our show. Yep. That is a wrap. So on the national level. Yeah. So before before we close out, I, um, I've got a story that will be in Thursday's paper or was in Thursday's paper, depending on when you're listening to the show about the potential impact of the Affordable Care Act repeal um, and, and any Medicaid cuts that might be included as a function of that on our local schools. So Vancouver Public Schools sent a letter to uh, Senator Patty Murray's office regarding the amount of funding that that district gets in Medicaid reimbursements. Um, the House version of the bill included $881 billion in, in Medicaid cuts over the next 10 years. Uh, Vancouver Public Schools, to get hyper drill down, hyper local, uh, Vancouver Public Schools receives about a quarter of a million dollars per year in Medicaid reimbursements for direct services to students, which obviously in the grand spectrum of $881 billion is nothing but um well that, it's nothing on the national exactly right when you talk about like the kids that are going to be right so that sounds i mean that sounds here. small you know that sounds small and, and but but here's what that actually means so there are between 2000 and 2500 vps students who receive direct services as a function of medicaid reimbursement i mean that includes things like psychologists occupational therapists speech language pathologists nurses um mm-hmm. and these these kids whose families qualify for medicaid are receiving pretty significant services in the schools so there's a real fear that if if the aca is repealed um so what i want clarified with help me understand with this thing is this letter saying if the aca is repealed they're going to lose this or are they saying if the house republicans version of the american health care act or whatever it's called what um, they're saying is if is if medicaid is cut substantially uh, that as a function of whatever whatever health care bill ends up finally being approved uh uh-huh so they're basically the saying impact. this is what it's what is at stake right right and and just because the were those cuts officially announced in the uh acha mm-hmm. yeah the okay. the h and that's that's a big part of why representative jamie herrera butler and i think maybe the, the the reason that she voted was a rare republican in voting no on the house because version it was a of the... bad idea <laughs> um because of the medicaid the medicaid cuts and and in her uh statements talked about her concerns about the impact on children and um, the impacts uh, if if that health service health care is eliminated mm-hmm. or, or scaled back significantly this doesn't mean that the schools would not offer these services it just means that they would be taking the funding because they're they're required to provide these services in many cases they're required so it's going to gonna be a hell of a lot harder to provide these exactly services. so so here's what the district says so reductions in medicaid funding would cause school districts to divert more levy generated resources toward addressing underfunded idea uh legal mandates and meeting basic student needs so so here we have at the state level 
the McCleary conversation that that is ongoing yep. um, and, and concerns over the amount of levy dollars that districts are spending on non-essential services. Yep. So on not, you know, that are not spending on, on instruction and on, mm-hmm. on classroom material and the the healthcare act potentially could exacerbate that problem so yeah absolutely the i feel like it's an important thing an important caveat we have here um it's good that they frame this as uh the impact of aca repeal because i mean that is definitely what republicans have been obviously touting for seven years Mm -hmm. or that the acha God, I wish I could remember what that acronym stands for. American Healthcare Act. That's right. For the win. AHCA. That's right. The, I mean, that bill, the House version of that bill is, it's not going to go anywhere. The million, right. I mean, there's the, still a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done before well, the we're million, in the fall. Totally. But the million dollar question is, what is that Senate bill going to look like that they've been crafting in secret without even letting their own members see, making other members sign confidentiality agreements to be a part of the discussions? Oh, it has been, I mean, you know, obviously we're on the other side of the country, but I mean, just, just hearing the, the discussion or lack therefore of in D.C. is, I mean, it's just, it's it's been fascinating to watch but i think it is i think it's an absolute travesty yeah it's a true travesty <laughs> right. democracy that they would craft this behind i don't care what if the Dem- if democrats were doing this i would be i would be furious any party doing this no no government body should be crafting bills in secret and then trying to rush it to a vote before the public has a chance to look at it well, especially when of, it has such a dramatic impact totally on millions and millions of people it's the <laughs> the um it's been interesting that the news coverage has framed this around you know the idea that republicans are essentially being a bunch of hypocrites because they were hypercritical of democrats exactly because they were hypercritical hyper of democrats for crafting a bill with with that wasn't a, an entirely transparent process but it took eight like eight months for the ACA to be passed there was no there was no rush to get it pushed through before the 4th of July mm-hmm. and presenting the bill and taking a vote on it on the same day I mean this is certainly a, a far more opaque process than totally so totally and that that above and beyond anything is what I really am frustrated about. I truly believe in like open o- openness and transparency of whatever is passed. Substance be damned. Let's just make sure that we all are aware of what's happening. Right, right. You know, that's that is the premise of democracy. Right, right. That definitely shows our um, our biases. I think too, as reporters. <laughs> yeah, as a reporter, I want to know everything. Yeah, I have, totally. I want to be proxied into my local delegation's email. Yeah, servers. yeah, you absolutely. Know? Serious. God, if we could get that, that would be oh, awesome. that would be amazing. I wonder who they're going to lunch with. <laughs> when I, I remember when I, um, you know, the the county is very, very generous with public records. They're very quick to respond to public record requests. And um, so, pat on the back to any of you county records officials. That uh, are listening yeah, to you guys were awesome when I was covering Clark County. So um, there was one day I got uh, in a public records request for some emails as I'm skimming through them. Uh, Jeannie Stewart's taco recipe was in there. So did you try it? No, I wanted to do that and then blog about it. I mean, it was just like like you know generic taco seasoning recipe to throw on oh. your ground turkey or whatever. But oh. so. Oh well. Oh well. Well, anyway, it's um, it's going to be. 
I hate to use the word interesting because I feel like that is such a That's such a word. trite, yeah. Yeah. And I, more often than not, when people say interesting, they really mean something else and they're trying to be more polite. <laughs> but realistically, like, I do mean I'm very interested in seeing um, what is going, what the Senate is going to release, how far it's going to get, and what the potential ramifications are. Yeah. And what they're going to be. Because, I mean, here's a school district saying, hey, this is going to impact our This is going to, to directly impact families and children in yeah. our district. Well, another great day to be an American. Yay. <laughs> so we should probably wrap it up yeah. there um, I hope this new format works for you guys I hope you still enjoy listening to us every other week um, any feedback is as always appreciated I think you know how to reach out to Katie and myself but you can always email us at podcast.com or podcast at columbian.com and thank you guys um, that have reached out to us and sent us a message we always appreciate the good words of support so any feedback always appreciated and you can subscribe to the podcast on uh, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, basically wherever you find your podcast. So subscribe, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell whoever. Yeah, tell. Shout it on high. Yes. Yes. All right. See you in a couple of weeks.